from KQED. A Democratic slugfest in a special election for the state Senate could have been decided by Republicans. It's one of the topics on this week's California Politics Podcast. I'm John Myers from KQED, along with Marisa Lagos from KQED and Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project here for the week ending May 22nd. And a new place. I don't know why I feel so compelled to tell this to the audience all the time. They need to know that we travel. We travel for our craft. We're the the roving podcast. The roving podcast. You never know where we're going to show up. And this time we are coming to you from the studios of KQED in San Francisco. Uh, Mr. York was... uh, uh, Taking in the nightlife last night, and Marisa and I are just here working. You want to tell everybody? Have a good. Is that, is that is that how it is that how it works? Is that how it works? <laughs> is that what you call this? Is that how we're really going to start the podcast? Apparently is that what so. you're saying? Apparently. We could we could talk about my lack of sleep, but that's a whole other podcast. Thank you. There's the winning time of that's another podcast. Yeah, Marisa sleep deprived from a young child, and Anthony out uh, listening to music. That that arts podcast is coming next, folks. But this time it's <laughs> politics. And uh, we're going to talk this week um, about the special election for the state Senate in the East Bay, which we've talked about some, but it actually came to a a conclusion uh, this week. We'll also talk about something else we've talked about some. I was going to say finally, but then given our second topic that's going to go on for 18 months. A long time more, exactly. <laughs> like, this was a short, this was a short cycle. The rollout of the beginning or the something or whatever you'd call it of the uh, Democratic race for the U.S. Senate, um, which uh, Ms. Lagos got to see a little firsthand uh, at the California Democratic Convention parts of yeah. it. And we'll talk about that yeah. in a moment. We'll talk about both of those topics on this California Politics Podcast. But let's start with that race in the state Senate, uh, East Bay, Alameda and Contra Costa counties. We've talked about it before. Steve Glazer. Uh, one, Steve Glazer, uh, Democrat, uh, mayor of Orinda, beats Susan Bonilla, an assembly member from Concord. The results in that race, uh, at least as of now, probably a few ballots will tick in, but uh, Glazer won pretty handily. Gla- Glazer won by um, uh, about nine percentage points, about uh, 60,800 votes to 50,500-ish for Susan Bonilla. Um And, you know, we've talked about this race so many times and whether this race was about um, uh, political philosophy or um, just good old political tactics. Uh, What 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 do we think? I mean, what's the you know, what's what's the take at this point in terms of uh, just running a smart race versus a some kind of notable shift in democratic politics? Well, I mean, I think this speaks to, you know, the district, right, more than a broad uh, you know, sort of push back on democratic politics. Uh, and let's be clear, Glazer still ran as a Democrat. <laughs> but I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. There was a lot of outside spending. There was a lot of interest from groups that were not just the core candidates. Um, you know, at the, at the convention I was at last weekend, they had phone banking going on. I mean, this was this is important to Democrats to get Bonilla, or at least the party and, and their sort of core followers to get Bonilla elected. But um yeah, I think you mentioned it. I mean, I think Republicans really played a huge role in this. It's a, you know, a fairly moderate district and and there was two Democrats running. So, I mean, really, really, Steve Glazer, I mean, he found the right niche. Right? Sure. I mean, if you're guaranteed 80 percent of the Republican vote and have a Democratic base and a geographic base in a district that's divided geographically as well as politically. Um, yeah, that's the right niche. But, uh, you know, to what extent will will this be able to be replicated? I mean, it took a tremendous amount of Republican discipline in a district where they've had some 
success. I mean, you look, they won an assembly uh, assembly race in that district just in November, and they were able to – there was one Repu- other Republican who was in the race, but um, that candidate dropped their campaign. Um, there was some question about whether or not that was going to work because uh, the name of the Republican candidate was still on the ballot. Um, but so it took some Republican discipline. There was just a, a – uh, a, a set of unique circumstances that made a, a Glazer victory possible. I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether or how uh, repeatable this is or whether it was just, uh, you know, a and if you can hold on to that seat, because I think that's one thing we heard before the you know polls even closed from the left was great. If he wins, we're going back at it um, very quickly. And yeah, so, because the seat has to has it comes up for election next year, uh, and it's a special election, right? So I mean, it could be a quick, very quick turnaround. But we'll, yeah. And also, I mean, Glazer did spend right. He did run for that assembly seat. He had spent yeah. a lot of time and money, even prior to the special election. I think sort of laying out his case to voters. Um, so, like to, your, to Anthony's point about it you know, being able to replicate that elsewhere. I think this was sort of an unusual set of circumstances. I I wonder about 2016, though. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, number one, I wonder if, how, and when uh, Glazer and Labor are able to to reach some sort of truce, Uh, maybe not with all of Labor, but maybe some of Labor. And we already saw today uh, Tim Sobranti uh, announcing that he was not going to run. He wouldn't be among those challenging Glazer, he ran, or Baker in in that assembly seat, right, right, right. That he's uh, he's joined the staff of Eric Swalwell, Congressman Swalwell. Um, so uh, and 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 then politically, I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch Glazer in the Senate and what and what happens in 2016. Does Kevin DeLeon have to spend caucus resources to defend Glazer in a in a in a year where there's going to be a lot going on? Let me walk back to the campaign a little bit, because I want to look forward to what happens with a Senator Glazer. That's what I'm looking forward um, to. But. Yeah, we are. But I'm going to walk backward <laughs> to the campaign just for a moment, because, I mean, there was a, a, a pretty robust Twitter um, discussion on this on, on Tuesday, on Election Day. Um, I, I somehow I somehow provoked the uh, Easily provocable Steve Maviglio, Democratic consultant who was working for organized labor's independent effort, um, into talking about whether or not there was a template here, and 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 I do th- and, you know and he was saying there's no template. I mean this was the early spin, and to me this was a, a clear indication that they knew that Boni was going to lose. You know, so it was yeah. the early it was the early working of the message, which was this is an anomaly. Uh, you had big money that came in from Republican-leaning groups. You had um, a Republican who was on the ballot but not on the ballot, you know, and all these kinds of things that you couldn't replicate somewhere else. And low I think that turnout. is a— Yeah, low turnout. Or, well, pretty good turnout for a special election, but— right. Still, right. But having said all that, I do think there are some interesting lessons out of this about the top two system and about this ability to look beyond the party faithful. And, and, and the question I asked at the beginning about tactics, is you are seeing some people have a discussion about whether or not the Democratic Party um, could have done more than just target diehard Democrats, and that they mm-hmm. kept targeting the people who already were with them. And did they need to look outside of that group to independents, to maybe disaffected or fringe Democrats in some ways? I mean, I think that's a hard thing to do when you have someone like Glazer who was running, you know, so definitively to Bonilla's right, who is, you know, 
was a teacher herself is very aligned with the unions. But I have a moment here where anyone's running to the right of anyone in a Democratic district. I mean, all due respect to Democrats, but these are both Democrats. But, well, right. That's yeah. my point. And I think that like in any in, in other districts, Bonilla wouldn't have been the liberal candidate necessarily. Right. I mean, she's not. I mean, take away her sort of labor support and, and that backing. She's not the most liberal of that caucus. Right. But it, I think this, again, speaks to how sort of district by district these races are. And I brought this up before and I'm not going to repeat my line so you guys don't all run away from me. But, you'll have to go back to another podcast, yeah. folks, if you want that reference. Uh, Glazer had some very specific um, beefs with with the unions. Right. And I think that, again, like the funny thing is take that away run glazer as you know some of a lot of his sort of policy and political positioning in say a central valley district and he might have been the liberal candidate so i mean you know it's it's all relative i guess but again on the on the way the campaign played out i mean one of the things that i find interesting too is uh, when the votes were cast and what the voters were hearing because we kept hearing in this race uh, from some coverage I did in the first round when there were more Democrats in the race to even forward, uh, mailer after mailer after mailer. They oh, got the TV more ads. Uh, the TV ads to a point. But I mean, the mailbox, the just the, the vitriol that was coming in people's mailboxes of what they were getting and how many people uh, voted by mail versus voting at the precinct. And at what point did they tune out of all of that and just make a decision? So um, I was combing through tweets about this race um, before we started uh, recording the podcast. And I just went back in time. And so, like, for instance, uh, here's a tweet from uh, a woman named Kristen Connolly. Shout out. I'm just going to be shouting out a lot of people here, folks. She writes, it's election day and SD7, polls open. This means Johnny's Donuts. Hey, we could record from there sometime. And voting with my kids <laughs> to celebrate democracy. So she went to the polls, but very few people went to the polls. And when you saw those ballots come back and the, the tally... Uh, you know, that eight o'clock magic tally where they uh, release all the votes they have already counted, the numbers hardly moved through the night. I mean, that was the vast majority of votes had already been cast. People had made up their mind in this race. And so I think, again, about tactics, about what good at a certain point does it do to keep, you know, to to, to run a campaign the old school way when people were not tuning in in that way. Well, I mean, to your earlier point, I know that they may have been late, but I know that there were efforts uh, by the pro Bonilla forces to to target Republicans. Uh, they just didn't work, and and I think that's what, what Marisa was talking about. When you have a candidate like Glazer in the race that sort of occupies that space, they found it they found it was very hard to move Republican voters. Or what were they saying? Do you have any? I mean, do you have any, I, any I, sense? I don't. I mean, I know that there was a mail program, you know, at at. Into targeted a pro bonia mail program targeted at at Republicans and independents because see that to me is fascinating for the mixed message nature of it all because they had right. spent so long pushing Glazer to the right and portraying him as a Schwarzenegger guy as a Bush guy as a uh, something that then to try to go to Republicans and try to push away from him I mean that just that's that, that's like an acrobatics trick. Well, and remember you know in the race before Bonilla had to contend with Joan Buchanan another Democrat and so. And and had to run sort of to the base uh, initially too, and so it, it, there wasn't a whole lot of time to pivot. Um, it was just a, a very diff, you know, a very small needle for Bonilla to thread, and she ultimately wasn't able to do it. I mean, because of the turnout, because of you know, because of the electorate, and because of uh, because of a lot of reasons, and and also to your point, because of top two. 
clearly um, um, real core centrist Democrats um, were very unhappy in this race and, and unhappy about the way unhappy about the way Glazer ran it. We've talked in the podcast before about Glazer's rocky relationship with organized labor the last three years. Uh, another tweet from the Contra Costa Young Democrats, Coco Young Dems. And they're talking about Twitter now here, folks. Who follows Steve Glazer as in followers on Twitter? C. Baker, AD 16. That's Catherine Baker, the Republican. Uh, says all you need to know. Again, this messaging that um, that Glazer was not uh, the guy who should be representing the Democratic Party. And, and then um, I do really want to point out um, some of what we heard immediately after the, uh, the election on Tuesday night. So the statement that was released by the California Democratic Party was attributed to the party's executive director, Sean DeWesley. And I think it was worth reading. Assemblymember <laughs> Susan Bonilla, this is not a tweet, ran as a progressive candidate who fought tuition increases for UC and CSU students and delivered balanced budgets. Her opponent claimed to be a Democrat, but ran a cynical campaign to appeal to Republican voters in a low turnout election. We know that low turnout elections favor Republicans. When Democratic voters show up and vote, Democrats win. We will not back down from races like this in the future. Um, No olive branch to Democrat Steve Glazer. None. Zero zip nada. No. (laughs) Which is why this is going to be so fun for us to watch, I believe, now that he lands in Sacramento. One other thing out of that that comment that I just have to point out to, um, again, tributing to to Ms. Wesley, when Democratic voters show up and vote, Democrats win. Well, Democratic voters then, by extent, you know, by by assumption of her comment, did not show up. Why didn't Democrats show up? And that, I think, is, again, a lesson about special elections and turnout and all these other things that, I mean, you're, you're saying that, that Democrats didn't show up, but like it's whose your fault is that, well, but it's, it's the party's job, right, well, right? To make them show up. And how much money did you spend? I find that sort of a baffling comment. Cause it's like, well, yeah, when, you know, when it rains, there's clouds in the sky. I, mean, I don't know. I just, I don't really, it, it seems like it's sort of admitting that despite all the money spent in this race, that, that they sort of failed at, at the core mission of a party, which is voter turnout. Well, and implicit in that is something, John, that you've talked about for the last couple of weeks of sort of what, what it means to be a quote, true Democrat. And right. I think that's sort of implicit in, uh, in, in the statement that you read, um, that, because because it's not true. I mean, some some Democrats did vote for Steve Glazer. I mean, that's he was able to put together. I mean, he won with a lot of Republican support. But if he had only gotten Republican votes, he wouldn't have won. Right. And um, unless and so, Democratic turnout was unbelievably depressed, and we don't believe that to be the case, we no. believe right. He won some Republicans, some Democrats, some Independents. So whatever, a lot of it Republicans. may have been a smaller percentage. It may have been fifteen, twenty, twenty-five percent. I don't know. Uh, you know what the percentage was, but. But I think going forward in terms of a discussion of what it means to be a Democrat um, and whether or not there's room for someone with the – it'll be interesting whether or not I – mean, what, what is that statement saying? That there's no room for people like Steve Glazer uh, and what they believe in the Democratic Party or is it just the way – the tactics and the well, way that campaign was and run? And also does that mean – I mean – if if there was, you know, if mailboxes were flooded, if TV, you know, if you were watching live TV, you were seeing this, even if you weren't in the district because it's all the same market, then does that mean that Democrats heard the message and just didn't care? Like, does that mean that if you're not part of the sort of core party faithful that you didn't see Glazer as this big boogeyman that they, they portrayed him as? I mean, you know, it just seems like a little bit like if if this was really this... Um, 
huge test of of everything we're talking about and the values of the Democratic Party, and they still weren't able to get people excited in that district. What does that say? And again, you know, just before we move to what happens now, this notion of what it means for organized labor. Um, yes, it. we have to be careful that there's not a template here for the rest of the state. But look at, at two special elections in 2015 that organized labor has played in and and failed to get what they wanted. Orange County, where they tried to get the Republican they wanted, Don Wagner over John Morlock, that didn't work out. And now East Bay, where they tried to block Steve Glazer and were unsuccessful. And again, I don't subscribe to the theory that there's huge templates for the rest of the state, but I do wonder about the tactics of running campaigns, um, especially in a top two universe where the rules are going to change and people can find these coalitions. And and I mean, I think it's going to be for all the people who've said top two would change the system and everybody who went, ah, no, it's not. In some places, it's going to be really interesting to watch. And I yeah. think this is one of those races. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if the the, the primary and the special election could have turned people off or made people tune out because this, even though it was a shortened cycle, it was or their such minds an were already race. made up by right. that one. Yeah, because you had, you know, Bonilla and Buchanan having to differentiate themselves from one another and, and trying to sort of then deal with the Glazer aspect. I mean, I think it's um, that that could have maybe muddled things to some extent. So let's talk about what happens now with a senator-elect Glazer. Um, uh, John Fleischman, well-known Republican um, operative spitball thrower, um, on Twitter wrote, um, in the latest SD7, Senate District 7 News, liberal Democrat beating the liberal Democrat. So for a Republican, you don't see any difference there. Um, what happens with a, with a Steve Glazer walking into the Senate uh, who are his allies? Who does he bridge with? What's his relationship with the governor? I mean, I'm not sure we, we can't answer any of these, but these are all things to watch. He's going to come in as a budget is being crafted here. I mean, depending on when the vote is finished and he takes the oath, um, there's a lot of interesting little plays here. Yeah, especially given that the Senate is sort of known for the power of their moderate caucus. And, you know, I, I think that most of those folks have staked out very different ground than Glazer has, but I think there are questions about whether he can build bridges with them, um, how, yeah, how he interacts with Republicans and, um, you know, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, he's one person, so <laughs> it's not like it's going to change everything. But I think the the sort of interpersonal dynamics will be fascinating, as fascinating as the politics to some extent. Uh, agreed. I'm also, I, I'm also interested to see what sort of relationship, if any, um, he has with Brown, right? I mean, Brown was not involved in this race. Um, you know, Glazer managed Brown's first campaign for governor. Brown was uh, was quiet in this race, didn't endorse, didn't get involved. Um, and, you know, and, and to what extent Brown has a relationship with any other freshman senator, uh, you know, I, I don't know. But, but, you know, this one's a little bit different. And I think that on the personal level, if not the political, it's going to be fascinating. You watch. could certainly play two different ways there, couldn't you? One of them could be he could be the governor's emissary in lots of ways in dealing with things in the Capitol, which could actually um, not go over well with other Democrats who see themselves as the power brokers with the first floor, with the governor's yeah. office. Uh, conversely, he could be the thorn in the governor's side. He could, you know, and and it could 
you know, because he doesn't want to do that and he's trying to find his own course and he's got to run for re-election again next year. I mean, right. We, yeah. we don't know where the dynamic Although he's comes been, out of that. Throughout the campaign, he talked a lot about being a Jerry Brown Democrat. He talked about the places he disagreed with the governor on things like high-speed rail, for example. But he, did, but he didn't walk away from his past. And I mean, and so, um, you know, I mean, if Jerry Brown were a legislator, right, what would organized labor do to him, <laughs> right? Good point. I don't know, deep thought just, of the just day. Just let that sit. I mean, seriously. Let, let it let it just let it, uh, percolate, marinate, yeah. ferment, ferment. Know, whatever it's going to do. All right, so um, let's move to our other topic. But as we do, one more tweet from the special Senate race that I thought was kind of interesting uh, from a guy named Danny Willis. So Danny J. Willis, there's your shout out. This is the it's the shout out of twi- uh, Twitter uh, podcast. If the SD7 race is a scale model of the 2016 presidential race, I'm spending next year in a cave somewhere, a very remote cave. Amen. Exactly. Where the Postal Service can't find me. Where no one can find (laughs) us. So let's move on to a place where people could be found uh, who like democratic politics this past weekend, including our very own Marisa Lagos. I I joke that it was a rock, paper, scissors contest that either she won or lost, depending on how you look at it between me and you. Um, But the state Democratic Party convention in Anaheim and the rollout of the U.S. Senate race. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought you were going to say, could you find Loretta Sanchez or could you not? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the the great kerfuffle over a uulating war cry, uh, how quickly it came um, categorized, named, labeled. Yes. Yeah. So... um, yeah, I mean, I headed down there because we decided once Sanchez entered the Senate race against Kamala Harris that <laughs> then we things wanted to got go to interesting. Yes. Sorry, and, Democrats, but otherwise. Well, you know, um, although there was uh, there was a floor vote on whether or not to endorse the vaccination bill. That's the other fun part. How'd that go? That's an, oh, that was interesting. Um, anywho. So, yeah, so <laughs> we've talked so much. That's about the first it. time I think anyone's ever uttered the word anywho That's in our California politics I, I podcast. My money would have been on you being the anywhooer. <laughs> well, you know, leave it to Lagos. I'm tired. Um, anywho, <laughs> now twice. Okay, so we went down. Kamala Harris gave her speech um, very well. Should, should we? Should we kick to? We'll, we'll let's get talk. To, we'll let's get talk to generally. But but let's, let's let's deal with the Sanchez kerfuffle yeah, so, first, if you don't mind. So, so the fact that she Laura made Sanchez this comment. Sanchez comes out Thursday, announces that she's uh, running for the seat after a little bit of a stumble on on that. Um, basically, on sa- on Saturday of the convention, a video emerges of her speaking to the Indian American Caucus um, at a restaurant nearby where she was essentially, as she explained it later, talking about getting a phone call from somebody who said, my community wants to support you. Um, This being notable in part because Kamala Harris is half Indian American. And she essentially made a comment that, oh, I thought when I walked in to meet this guy that he was Indian and did the hand-to-mouth gesture. The hand-to-mouth gesture, <laughs> the woo-woo. I thought that was a foot-to-mouth gesture. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, and again, the point being here is that she confused... People whose ancestry is South Asia to people whose ancestry is North America. And American I mean, Indian. American Indian versus Indian yes. American, right? I mean, so... Um, 
Yeah, so things got even more exciting at, the, at, at this, and uh, we had a lot of r- reporters running after Sanchez at one well, point. Well, the viral she media was running after of of away from them. Yeah, um, you know, and that's the thing these days. I think about being a politician, or really anybody in the public sphere, is everyone has a video camera in their phone, and so anything you say is going to be potentially videotaped and put up on the internet forever. So uh, Sanchez had to address it, and we'll stay with this theme for a moment. Sanchez had to address the issue or decided she needed to in her convention speech on Sunday morning. And, well, and, and, after, and after she sort of tried to avoid it all day Saturday, including what I mentioned, which was her running away from KCRA, which I think some pundits have said might be more damaging to her than the actual war cry. Um, And then, you know, when when I caught up with her that afternoon, right after this broke, she just sort of tried to to move the conversation. Well, this is about jobs. We're not talking about that. Um, So, you know, I think from a political perspective, having to deal with this in your convention speech is not the ideal world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, I think as I wrote it on Twitter, this is a, you could call this a Myers-ism, Anthony. It was a humdinger of a a still frame of Sanchez running away from the television cameras. So obviously, yeah, I mean, she clearly had some consultations with her new campaign consultant, Bill Carrick, and others and decided they needed to address it. So she said she said she made a mistake. And then in part of that conversation to the convention, she said this. Let's forgive each other. Let's work together and make this a great year of campaigning on the issues that we care about and on the ideas that we share. So please, let's talk about the issues. I've I've said my apology now enough. I mean, that was what she tried to do. We could talk about the tactics of that. But but as you said, on the other side, there was Kamala Harris. And and, you know, give kudos to Marisa here in looking for what the theme or the way the takeaway of the two women was. I mean, you really you could see it. Yeah. I mean, this is really you know, these are both fairly liberal Democrats. I'm sure there are policy differences that will emerge during this campaign. But when you, when they were talking about policy this weekend, it was a lot about jobs and economic inequality and, you know, sort of speaking up for the most vulnerable. Uh, Loretta Sanchez talking about her time in Congress fighting against sexual assault in the military. Kamala Harris talking about her work, you know, against human trafficking. Um but the styles are just so different. And and they always have been. And, you know, Sanchez supporters will say they love her for being off the cuff. They love her for speaking the truth, whether or not that gets her in trouble. Kamala, very tightly controlled. Every, you know, appearance, she's surrounded by handlers. It's sort of scripted in a lot of ways. Um, the story John was sort of referring to that I did for the California report, there was literally this contrast on Saturday where Loretta Sanchez was hosting a margaritas and mambo party. It was loud. It, you know, everybody's sort of swirling around her. Kamala Harris is on the other side of this plaza with milk and cookies, and people are lining up very sort of politely to take a picture with the attorney general. And her area is like roped off as opposed to Sanchez's. So I think, um, you know, we saw this on full display. And even without the kerfuffle, we would have seen it. But that really just shone, I think, a bright light on it. Very polite versus raucous. Well, and it was interesting going into the convention, some of the early skirmishes uh, online, you know, Twitter skirmishes between Sanchez and Harris's uh, campaigns involved Sanchez campaigning on her experience to get things done in Washington and Harris sort of taking that traditional political outsider, you know, kind of fix Washington from the outside. But stylistically, it's sort of reversed, right? right? You would expect that kind of stayed campaign style to be from the from the insider candidate, which... 
I think Harris is. I mean, Harris is the establishment candidate, even though she's the Washington outsider. Well, and it's funny because I think, to your point, you know, Sanchez's side had been pushing this narrative of, like, ask her what she's done. I mean, we saw um, Congressman Javier Becerra, who's been sort of bandied about as a potential candidate in this race, too, basically challenging reporters. Ask Kamala Harris where she stands on issues. You can see my record. You can see Sanchez's record. And I think that that would have been more of the talk on Saturday had this not broke. Um, Harris. That's actually a really good point. I mean, like here was the moment to push that narrative and she completely flopped it with the whole Native American thing. In her press conference, Kamala Harris and her Q&A with reporters stumbled a few times. I mean, she nothing huge, but she was asked by the Sacramento Bee how what she felt about high speed rail and the twin tunnels. And after answering the high speed rail question, she launched into this thing talking about traffic on the 405 in Los Angeles. And, you know, Steve Siders from the B was like, excuse me, Miss Attorney General, I was talking about the uh, Delta tunnels. You know, so it was like, again, not a huge problem, but something that you want to seem like you're very familiar with if you're running for a statewide office. Um, I think that would have made it into some people's stories had this whole thing not broke. So two cl- two clips from their convention speeches that I just think are worth playing really quickly, and then we can talk a little bit more. So this is Loretta Sanchez's uh, speech on Sunday morning, an excerpt talking a little bit about why she is running And I think, again, to this message of why she should be running and why there should be a race, um, because that's a lot of what we've heard about, whether or not there should be uh, a race inside Democratic ranks. Over the years, I have encouraged so many people to run for office, to vote, to make a difference, especially women and young people and minorities. And you know what? They have answered the call. And now they turn to me. And I have answered the call once again, and I will see it through. For as my husband says, si se puede, if we run, if we work, and if we vote, si se puede. And I don't think you can miss the last part of that, which is the call to a cultural moment in in. American politics and California politics and 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 her place oh, yeah. as a Latino candidate and in this race. And she really drove this home in that speech. I mean, she talked at length there and in some other speeches that weekend about her relationship with her grandmother and sort of being from this Mexican family and, and, and the close-knitness of it and how her grandmother on her deathbed while Sanchez was running for Congress told her, well, this was sort of a bizarre story, but not to go back to D.C. that weekend because she was going to die and said she felt like a failure because she had never owned her own home. And, you know, Sanchez talked about, but you sent two granddaughters to Congress. Um, and then she said she went to D.C. anyway, which I thought was sort of weird. It, that sounds a little rambling. <laughs> it was very, that sounds like, a little Sanchez, rambling. you know, and, you know, as opposed to Kamala Harris, who doesn't really talk about her personal story as much. And to that point, here's an excerpt of Kamala Harris uh, in her speech to the convention, where clearly her goal was to broaden herself out beyond her record as attorney general. And I'll tell you what it means to stand up for the people. It means standing for an economy that works for all people. It means for all those moms and dads working two jobs just to get by, a federal minimum wage that provides them more than $15,000 a year. It means defending collective bargaining rights for working Americans 
standing against an organized assault on organized labor. And again, I think that part is interesting on a couple of things. One, it's a pushback on what Washington has or has not done. You heard that theme, I think, some in dysfunction of Washington. Two, it's uh, an obvious, uh, hey, I'm one of you, organized labor, which she needs in this race. Uh, and then her speech touched on other national issues. And I think that's her quest now, right? She's got to make herself beyond crime and punishment, California. Yeah. And it speaks to sort of the blank slate that that she still is with the voters, even though there's a growing air of, uh, if not inevitability, then certainly uh, likelihood. I mean, she's she's clearly the, the front runner in this race. And no matter who else gets in, uh, I, I can't anticipate another candidate getting in that would make her anything but the front runner going into this race. And so, um, and yet California voters don't know her. That's sort of the duality of Kamala Harris at this point. And it'll be interesting to see how that, how she sort of molds herself and how she gets molded in the public but, eye over the knows, next year. You know, she knew this was obviously going to be broadcast elsewhere, but this was a speech to the party faithful. You know, she opened up with people saying, why would you run for Congress? It's so terrible there. And she talked about, you know, very in very sort of glowing terms what Barbara Boxer has been able to accomplish. You know, you mentioned the labor thing. I think there was a lot of notes she hit. She even um, said, you know, Something about having to end the the federal uh, crackdown on medical marijuana, which was sort of interesting as somebody who's tried to avoid that issue most of her career. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she's definitely trying to frame herself in a very specific way. And, and like you said, to broaden her appeal and, and to make it you know, clear that she doesn't just care about crime and punishment. She cares about economic issues labor, all these things that are important to the Democratic base. So uh, let's move quickly to a little taste of side dish here before we say goodbye on this uh, edition of the Politics Podcast. Uh, I'm going to jump in with mine first because I think there's a thematic link between mm-hmm. Ms. Lagos and Mr. York and theirs. And if I'm nothing if not the Segway guy. I think you've accused me of that, of that really? before. You had a scooter. Well, that was your scooter I was talking about. Wrong Segway. <laughs> That's another podcast. I think we've already done that three times in this one. Uh, my Twitter handle, John Myers. Uh, And my side dish is just a a quick moment of another story I did this week um, on that. Marisa and I've been working on this project on influence in government. We call it California Political Muscle. And it was a story I did, which you can find at kqed.org slash political muscle. I am nothing if not a shout out of my own work. Um, But uh, a story about the bill writing process in Sacramento where interest groups and lobbyists can ask legislators to have their bills drafted by the taxpayers' lawyers, by the legislative council. And there's almost no way to track it, and there certainly is no way now because the Ledge Council refused our request. They say they don't have to under Public Records Act uh, law to tell us how many bills they may have been drafted that are called unbacked bills. And I just want to briefly say that People inside the capital bubble go, well, of course, everybody knows this. And what we've said before is people don't know it. And this is part of the the currency of influence, I think, in the state capital, when you can get a bill drafted, how you get it done. You know, people talk about the 11th hour sessions of the legislature where um, bills are dropped out of nowhere and they go, where did that bill come from? Sometimes they came from the drawer of a lobbyist that was drafted as an unbacked bill months before and is put into the bloodstream of the Capitol at just the right time to get the right reaction. So it's a, you know, it's a nod to the fact that influence works. And some of the insiders with their tweets about what, what will John do next, uh, 
that there's a back doorway to the Capitol, that there's an elevator that, that lawmakers can use, that there's candy for free in offices. I mean, I get it. But, you know, again, it's a reaction to there's nothing to see here. I would and consider we'll, that a compliment. Yeah, we'll see. We'll let other people make, make the judge. Okay. To the world of policy, uh, Marisa Lagos, who you can find at M Lagos on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so I was interested this week by this uh, Public Policy Institute of California poll or uh, excuse me, report, which looked at realignment, which was the criminal justice reform from 2011 that essentially uh, took non most nonviolent offenders away from state prisons and parole and made them the responsibility and purview of counties, jails, probation, et cetera. Um, this was really aimed at helping to ease overcrowding in state prisons. Uh, PPIC found that it did, um, but they also found that a lot of the uh, concerns about it have not come to bear in terms of this increasing violent crime and and, and very serious crimes. They did see they they believe there's been a, a uptick in auto burglaries um, directly related to this. Property crimes are the one thing that they've seen. And I was interested by their methodology because I've talked a lot about this in years past. The state really built no tracking mechanisms into realignment and I'll go out on my conspiracy theory limb and say maybe they didn't want to, to have these things tracked. Um, but what PPIC did was looked at, and it's hard, right, because you can't say this caused this in, in criminal justice. It's very hard to prove causality. Um, but you can, you know, see correlations. And they, they really looked at crime rates among states that had been very similar to California for like the last decade or two. And there was this, you know, di divergence just among property crime since realignment. So um, I think it's interesting and I think it's something that we need to keep an eye on and, and see as, as Prop 47 rolls out, which sort of further... Uh, bump down some crimes um, and, and is continuing to empty jails and prisons. But the blood did not run in the streets as was promised by as, some Republican senators. As we have heard before. I, I will just say as my transition here that if someone was to say that there was a reason you don't build in metrics to track it, it's in part because realignment was driven by the fiscal necessities of the state, not necessarily the policy preferences. That's not to say the policy wasn't um, promoted and believed in by the governor and others. But I mean, had we not had a fiscal crisis that we were trying to push those programs and save Absolutely. money. And so maybe that's well, why the, you don't. Right. This was the fiscal crisis created an opening for people that had wanted yeah. to see these sorts of reforms. I do not think that without it, we ever would have seen this go through the legislature. And speaking of finances, uh, see my transition. You How see about that? that? That was nice. That was, thank you. You know, I'm a pro professional uh, guy. Uh, Anthony York, who can be found on Twitter at Anthony York 49. I, I don't know where Anthony York one is. Is there an Anthony York one on Twitter? That's my Gmail account. You can all email me there. There you go. Okay. Total shout out. So uh, finances, sure you uh, perhaps in a small side dish from you. Uh, you know, I thought it was interesting. The, the legislative analyst uh, took a look at the governor's May revision and sort of set set the parameters for the budget fight. Uh, you know, a, an analysis from, from the LAO uh, identified about $1.1 billion in discretionary income that's not being gobbled up by constitutionally guaranteed programs much more rosy revenue projections then yeah and and that sort of sets the sets the uh the parameters of the budget fight for the next three weeks here between the governor and legislative leaders uh that 1.1 billion already assumes uh the governor's uh 380 million dollar tax credit for the the earned income tax credit uh is adopted and so after that 380 million is subtracted 
from the revenue picture that's pre-98, that's a little wonky for this. Um, it's a little wonky for a side dish, but um, but uh, that there's still $1.1 billion to, uh, to mud wrestle over. And I think that the governor uh, and the Department of Finance, as always, will try to downplay that number and uh, Democrats will point to it as as a justification for some of the spending that they're going to want in uh, in a final state budget. Seems fair to say that that um, that really then the thing to watch is where do you land? What revenue number do you land on? Because right. that that sets the 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 um, the goalposts of the debate. And the revenue number is something that gets negotiated as part of the budget. Pro- I mean, as we've seen in years past, it's not like. There are there, there are there are no absolute numbers. Everything is well. There's projections. projections. I mean, these are all projections, and that's uh, uh, a, a little tease for something that I'll be writing about next week about budget projections. Nice, great. There you go. He, he, a, a little shout out at Grizzly Bear Project. Okay, good. Uh, Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project. Marisa Lagos from KQED, and I'm John Myers from KQED. As always, thank you for listening to this edition of the California Politics Podcast.